My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. My guest this week moved his family from the city to the country to begin the journey towards a more durable way of life. He and his wife now farm, raise livestock, host workshops, and homeschool their six children. He's also the author of Durable Trades, family-centered economies that have stood the test of time. Please welcome Rory Groves. You are the Renaissance. If you listened to my podcast last week with John Moody, which, if you haven't, you should go do now, you'll hear me ask two questions in my monologue. First, I asked, how did we get here? With we meaning faithful, Bible-believing Christian men, with here being essentially trash world, though I express it far more poetically in the monologue, if I do say so myself. And then the second question I asked was, what do we do? Which then John Moody went on to answer during our interview in his inimitable style. But then there's a third question after those two, which is, once we know how we got here and what to do in response, how do we do it? And that's not a trivial question. Things are moving so fast these days, and learning can take so long that it almost feels like there isn't time to learn it all. And I don't know about you, but I'm very much a show-me style learner. Do not let me try and figure something out on my own, because I'll spend hours making the most basic and embarrassing mistakes. Remind me to tell you what happened when I tried to play roulette for the first time. Similarly, I'm not so great at reading how to do something from a manual. I can do it, but it takes way more effort for me than it needs to. But instead, if someone demonstrates something to me, even once, I'm off and running. Regardless of how you learn, when figuring out how we got here, what to do, and how to do it, we need teachers who are appropriate for us and up to the task. Think back to your favorite teacher from grade school, middle school, high school, or even college. What were their most defining characteristics? I think of Mrs. Alexander, my 7th and 8th grade English teacher. She was kind, joyful, and smiling most, if not all, of the time. It was clear she loved the subject, loved her students, and loved teaching. Even at the time when I was 13 years old, I could tell that she could have done anything she wanted, and that maybe she was an author in her spare time, and yet she chose to teach. I was in her classroom for two hours a day, for two full school years, and that time shaped me in ways I'll probably never understand. In fact, while writing this, I did a quick Google search to see what I could find, and I found a photo of Miss Alexander. I hadn't seen her face in decades. Naturally, she was smiling in a way that I remember and have carried with me for a long time as a blessing. That's the gift of a good teacher. They show us how, in a way that sticks with us, changes our minds, changes our hearts, and sets us on a new trajectory as an act of service to their students and to God. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Rory Groves. A decade ago, he witnessed the fragility of the modern economy with our long supply chains and self-insufficiency and moved his family to the countryside to try something a little different. It's an increasingly common story today, successful professionals fleeing the city for ancient paths, and he started with not much more knowledge than I reckon most of us have right now. Now today, years later, his website reads, quote, We moved our family from the city to the country in the hopes of learning what our great-grandparents knew. That's why we call this place a learning farm. We feel called to share all that we are learning, traditional skills, raising animals, 
caring for God's creation, and stewarding the land. We do this through events and workshops, summer day camps, internships, and a quarterly newsletter, and by sharing up-to-date stories on this farm blog. In other words, Rory became a teacher, showing people the way down a road many of us are feeling called towards. Rory is also the author of the book Durable Trades, Family-Centered Economies That Have Stood the Test of Time, which provides a list of time-honored, family-centric vocations for those men, women, and families who are asking, okay, so once I move to the countryside, what do I do? Two different men in two different corners of my life recommended the book independently, and so I picked it up. I was pleased to see that my post-apocalyptic character classes, counselor and minister, were both included. Which ones might you be? I recommend Durable Trades strongly so that you can look into its mirror and perhaps see yourself, your future self, reflected. And that, I think, is one of the greatest values of Rory's work as a teacher. In who he is, he shows us who we might be. We now know how we got here and what we have to do, and Rory, his family, his farm, and his story show us by living example how we can do it. Praise God for the teachers. In our conversation, Rory and I discussed his background and worldview shift, the veneer of civilization, biblical metaphors and reality, food, fiber, and shelter, the pre-industrial village, the church inebriated, and the first order of business, wisdom. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. My passion is for exploring big ideas and spotlighting the men and women who come up with them. If you'd like to help the podcast grow, you can do so by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a five-star rating on Spotify. Plus, share this episode or another one of your favorites with a friend. The Renaissance of Men podcast is proudly sponsored by Reformation Coffee, providers of fine coffee beans hand-roasted by Pastor Brandon Lansdowne and his family in Springfield, Missouri. It's officially Christmas shopping season, and time is running out to get your gifts for everyone on your list. And you and I both know that everyone loves coffee. And what better gift is there than kingdom-building, family-supporting, God-glorifying, always-reforming, based-in-handsome three-piece suit-wearing coffee? None. There is no better gift. And you can get a head start on all the cool kids by going to ReformationCoffee.com and choosing from their four signature roasts, or if you can't make up your mind, choose the sampler and try them all. You can also subscribe to Reformation Coffee year-round by signing up for regular coffee delivery. And when you do, enter the code SUBFREE and get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee with your new subscription. Yep, that's right. When you sign up for the gift of coffee delivery, you get free coffee on the house. Again, go to ReformationCoffee.com for more and get your fresh roasted beans delivered just in time for the season. And please welcome this week's guest on the podcast, the author of Durable Trades, the owner of the Grovestead Learning Farm, the editor of the Grovestead Newsletter, plus a husband, father, teacher, and follower of Christ, Rory Groves. Rory, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Will. I picked up your book uh, before I came to hear you speak at the Trad Dad conference in, uh, in Battleground. I think it was back in May. And I found it to be a, a hugely inspiring story and, and picture of what could be for a lot of Christian men and fathers. So I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you. Well, awesome. It was great to meet you at the conference. And I'm uh, looking forward to having a deeper conversation here. 
I think you bring up a lot of really important questions that men are asking. Um, there's a lot of cultural conversation happening right now. What impact does, does Christianity have on American culture? If any, can it have an impact in politics, especially but outside of the realm of politics, I, I think men are beginning to ask, what can I begin doing in my household mm. and in my and in my local environment? And so I think you bring up an important set of questions and answers to those questions that I, I think a lot of men uh, really need to hear. Good. Thank you. So let's get started with, um, maybe we can start with a little bit of, of your story, because I think a lot of men listening uh, will be able to see themselves reflected in it. You were a software engineer. And then you and then you found your way out of that world. I don't want to. I don't want to lead too much. So you can go ahead and, and tell that story a bit. Uh, yeah. So uh, how did I get in, into writing a book about trades, starting from a position of high tech? Well, I was um, I was one of those computer kids from and earliest I can remember, I was programming a computer. I mean, I, I think if I had to put a number on it, maybe I was seven or eight years old when I started hacking on a computer with a. a programs from the back of a Commodore 64 manual. If there's any Gen Xers out there, they'll know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. But um, I loved it my whole life. I loved it. I went to, I got a, a computer science degree uh, in university. Didn't really need it, it turns out, in the way that I computing works. That's college is another topic yeah. probably for another day. But, uh, but anyways, I, you know, all consistently through my whole life, I was always drawn to high tech, um, always interested in being part of that um, uh, industry professionally. And, and that's what I did. I mean, up until just very recently, my whole career was in computer science and uh, programming and consulting and high tech and so forth. I've owned a number of software businesses over the years, um, collaborated with a lot of other people. And, you know, everything was well and good, as they say, uh, until um, about a dozen years ago, we moved out to a farm in southern Minnesota. And wh why did we do that? Well, um, Honestly, initially, we just kind of ran out of space where we were. We had a city, a house in the city, and mm -hmm. we had a um, second kid on the way and postage stamp sized lot. If you know how that is, a lot of traffic and is a great place. We actually really loved where we were. We always thought we'd stay there, but it just kind of became a logistical issue was where we're going to put more children. So we started looking around and some of my friends who were also in high tech, we're working remotely from acreages, rural acreages. And I just thought, you know, we could probably make something like that work uh, because a lot of what I did was remote based. Um, but even if it wasn't, we, you know, we just, we could still commute, which a lot of people do as well. Moved out to a farm. Um, we live on 10 acres in Southern Minnesota and outside of a little town called Northfield. And um, honestly, uh, the idea was twofold. I'd say one, one, definite aspect of it was we we're wanting to become more self-sufficient. We kind of, I don't know, maybe it's the high tech industry. You just see the pace of change. You see how quickly things go obsolete and you kind of see how brittle everything is. I mean, I, of course I, I go into this a little bit in the book, but th there are just, there, there are so many systems out there that I or my generation were involved in creating and we, they're not as stable as people might, may not have a, a shiny veneer, but they're not actually as stable as folks might think. And mm -hmm. so um, I think me and, and uh, some, of, some of us out there have kind of sensed this for a long time in coming before there was really any crisis moment, which is the need to become more practical, gain some other skills, um, even learn to grow food. Those were things that were on our hearts as well. But I didn't um, plan to do anything different professionally. I mean, I wasn't going to, you know, 
trade my job as a software engineer to become a farmer. I didn't know the first thing about farming and I knew, well, the first thing I did know is that I would fail miserably at it. And I certainly couldn't feed a family if I had to. So, so it was just, you know, truly a hobby farm, I think in the best, you know, in the, in the truest sense of the word, we just saw this as like a, a great place to raise kids. And the short of it is without going into, you know, without prolonging this too much, but the short of it is after we got here, after we got on the land, after we started working in the soil, um, it's like there was something in the soil. I guess you could mm. say it that way. Something happened where my love of high tech and all things modern and novel began to dissipate. And I started to crave this way of life that was a lot more rooted, literally, um, more um, working with my hands, working with my family was a huge part. Everything we did on the farm, we worked together as a family. Uh, and then my job, you know, this is, uh, I explained it that I'd have to wave goodbye to my family every time I went to my quote unquote real job. Yep. So these are like some of the questions that it started to gnaw on me over a period of years. And I just started to ask the question, is there options for men today who want to do something that's either home-based or just together with their family and has a more um, long-lasting uh, uh, trajectory. You know, in my, in my career, I mean, I'd say you got about three years before you're obsolete. Uh, there um, are some guys, there are guys out there who are still working on mainframes from the 80s. I mean, hats off to those guys because <laughs> those are, wow. Uh, that's, that's a, that's a, pretty long career if you're if you're lucky enough to have one of those jobs but for most guys guys like me everything i know is obsolete in about 3 years and so i just started to crave for things that were more permanent longer lasting things i could inherit to my children you know i was at this point we were starting to add more kids i was thinking a lot more generationally so i like to say that the land had its own effect on me that as I got out here, as I started doing these things, and, and as we started to grow our family, I started to look for a different type of vocation that would better suit where we're going to go, where I, where I want to go as a family. Oh, that's, I mean, I, I hear that, and there's this romantic kind of appeal to it while also knowing that it's, a, it's an enor enormous amount of work and, and a big journey. And so before we get into that, though, one of the things that struck me the most about your book was the way that you paint the picture of just how fragile and delicate so many of the systems that people inside urban areas depend on. I wonder if you could start unpacking that and really put a point on it and say, look, there's, these are the systemic weaknesses that you know about, but there are a few that maybe people don't know about. Yes. Um, well, there's a, there's a saying, I forget who says it, but we are at all times through uh, nine meals away from anarchy. Yeah. And if you think about it, let's just, Let's just boil it down to the bare essentials. I mean, what are, what are we talking about when we say civilization? We're talking about a very thin veneer, as it's been said, of polish on top of a very susceptible scaffolding um, that nobody knows really how, how much this, this whole thing can hold up to stress. And I think we, we, we got a glimpse, and I would call, I would say what happened during COVID was a glimpse. I would say that, um, that uh, that was just a tremor mm -hmm. and they did a lot to try to cobble together the semblances of sustainability through the covid pandemic not to mention you know the 10 trillion dollars or so we've we've uh, added to the national debt to try to get us out of um uh a, a crisis 
Well, I just think, you know, the whole system is like that. I mean, it's a house of cards. The whole, the whole economy is, has been rooted more or less for the last 50, 60 years on inflationary spending. Our government has been doing that, but the citizens demand it. I mean, you get, you get a politician in there who wants to take away somebody's, uh, you know, whatever gimmies, and they're <laughs> going to get voted out and they're going to find another politician who's going to get in there and, and redistribute the wealth of the nation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're kind of on this trajectory, which I compare in the book to the late Roman Empire. Of course, everyone likes to, you know, that's the whipping post, uh, whipping boy is the, the late Roman Empire looking at the decline of Rome. But there really are a lot of parallels when you compare things. I mean, our currency debasement is at, at a similar rate at 97% debasement in the last hundred years. Um, um, a lot of the a lot of the infrastructure has become so commoditized. Uh, so many of the systems have become industrialized. Things that used to be dependent on families to produce are now dependent on distant manufacturing plants over in China and over in all these different parts of the world. So while we are in many ways producing as much or more material abundance as we have in former times, um, it's really dependent on a very fragile, long supply chain. And if any one of the links in those chains goes sideways or breaks, uh, we could be looking at a a lot of different catastrophe scenarios. So, I mean, goal, you know, I, I, the goal isn't to try to scare everybody. I'm just saying you got to be realistic about it. Uh, we are living in a period in American history that is really unlike any other history, a period of history in the, in the history of the world. And, uh, we have a massive amount of affluence and we do not have the work or even the knowledge to back up a lot of what we're um, survive enough. I mean, if you have to, if the government has to say borrow $2 trillion a year, um, that means that we're <laughs> living beyond our means. Yeah. So you just follow that thread. And a, a lot of the people that are in the tech industry are very aware of these problems. Um, I don't know how long that can, can be kicked down the road, but I just figured if you have, if you can feed yourself, that's a good place to start. And I realized how seriously divorced I was from the the kinds of practices and knowledge that every human generation before myself had. You know, you go back to the Great Depression, and as disastrous as that was, you were still talking about an age where most of the people could go back to the land if they needed to and survive directly off the land. Like, they still maintained the knowledge, or they had someone in their family that could take them in. In fact, that's exactly what happened with my grandparents. They, my, my grandparents moved in with um, a family in a farm scenario so they could work and eat during the Great Depression. Fortunately, mm-hmm. they still had access to farms. Most of us alive today don't even, wouldn't know how to survive off the land if we had to. And so that's the kind of precarious situation we find ourselves in. So from my point of view, I just think it doesn't hurt to regain some of these skills. Um, and the side effect, or I should say the upshot of it all is I find it to be a superior way to live. You know, yeah, it's a lot of hard work, but I find it way more fulfilling to eat a meal that I've grown all the constituent parts together with my family with and then buying that meal from the grocery store. Not only is it healthier in most cases, but um, but there is like just a deep satisfaction knowing that we're closing the loop on things that just like our ancestors used to do for all of time, all the way back to Adam. So there, uh, I guess that, I don't know if I answer your question in a roundabout mm-hmm. way, but 
I would say economically, monetarily is our most precarious situation that we're facing right now. We are just so far beyond uh, return when it comes to the economic policy of this nation and frankly, of most Americans, that that is, that is, we're just beginning to feel some of the pangs of that through inflation. But I think that is the one that is going to, when the dollar fails finally, or where there's a sovereign debt crisis, that is going to be the thing that, that most Americans are going to struggle with the most because they just didn't see it coming, but you can see it coming. Mm -hmm. So, um, a couple questions. Um, do you, first, do you have a different perspective on the time that you spent in, in software now? Like, do you like, do you look back on that time and say, oh, wow, like that would have uh, probably not what a waste of time it was, but do you, do you look back on that with a different perspective than you, than you expected, uh, one way or another? Um, I see, I guess I don't know how to answer that exactly because you, you kind of arrive at the conclusions in life based on your previous experiences. Yeah. And that would be the same for me in software. I think in certain ways, I know people who grew up on a farm and they hate it and they do everything they can <laughs> to get away from the farm, you know? So I, right. I, I don't know. I, I would say this though, I would say the way I'm raising my children is about as far from technology as I can get them. Uh, <laughs> now my oldest is 13, so we're not talking. I mean, we're still, you know, right in the middle of parenting, but we have no television in the house. Um, none of our kids have any kind of uh, computerized devices or tablets or phones or anything. And I don't intend to provide any of those things. Um, we try to, as much as possible, uh, we're very limited on social media. We do have an Instagram account, but we don't use it that much. We try to focus on, um, uh, actually print, we do a print newsletter. Mm -hmm. And so like we, we just try to keep things as, as tangible as possible. And what we've seen in our own kids is that they flourish in other ways. Like they spend so much time reading and actually writing. My son manages, uh, the livestock on our farm. Uh, my daughter's very busy in the kitchen baking. She just made uh, Christmas cookies today. And so there are Wonderful. so many other great outlets that I think technology, at least for children, is a terrible influence. And I think it really robs children of gaining a work ethic, um, gaining an interest in education and other forms of um, um, modes of living because it just is the way it's designed is to really attract and steal your attention. And that's, that's kind of where the game is right now is as it pertains to all of these media platforms. And then my second question is at what point did faith enter your journey or were you always, you and your family always um, practicing faithful members you know, during the software days? I reckon probably not, but you never know. We actually were. Both my wife and I grew oh, up wow. in Christian homes. My father, my wife's father was a pastor, was a Lutheran pastor. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. And mm. so from the very earliest ages, uh, we were both raised in the church and we're very grateful to have been raised in faithful families like that. And that, that was always very front and center in our, um, in our family and in our desire to raise our children in that way too. Did that play into your decision? to to leave the urban areas as well or was that did those pieces start coming together later um late yeah they came together later i i i was not thinking in the kinds of terms i'm telling you right now when this <laughs> right. all started i mean <laughs> like 
it just seemed like a good idea at the time. And it was, but I wasn't thinking about how this would impact my career, how it would impact uh, my view on industrialism uh, and economics uh, and parenting, technology. I mean, I wasn't thinking about those things. I've seen it as it's unfolded since we've been out here. I will say that I have a much closer connection with God and I see him in a much more visible way through his creation than I ever did in the city. And there are Mm. many, many, I even, I was gardening when we were still in the city a little bit, but there are so many dimensions of God that come alive through nature that even if I were to avail myself of the nice natural parks that did surround where we lived in the city, it's nowhere near the kind of same experiences when you are literally running livestock or depending on a harvest or praying for rain, you know, these kinds of things. Um, and a lot of the agricultural themes in the scripture came alive in different ways for us. So I, I really do embrace the land. I encourage my children to, to stay on the land, to steward land. I think it's, I think it is a biblical, um, a principle that the righteous inherit the earth, it says. And I think that we are to be stewards of the earth. And so if we can find ourselves on some parcel of land, it gives you that opportunity to really exercise that kind of dominion task. Can you share an experience that you had maybe when you were first transitioning from time in the city to time in the country when you had that first experience of of God's glory being being back in nature? One of the times we're like, oh, I've heard that my whole life. And now I'm kind of seeing it play out right in front of me. How about sep- separating the sheep from the goats? <laughs> okay, got, go for th- that. Sounds well, great. I mean, it just it's just all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, so that's what that <laughs> means. <laughs> I mean, it's not super, it's not super uh, deep, I guess. But there, there's a when you work with we we have both, and when you work with them, you see the demeanor of goats are stubborn. And they're always trying to look for ways to get out of where you want them to be. Um, they're always trying to infiltrate some some area of the farm that you've trying to fence them out of. And then you have the sheep who are uh, they're more skittish. Uh, you you actually actually here's something I don't know if this is even uh, some theological thing, but when we move sheep, we have to corral them. We have to get behind the sheep. Oftentimes, clap kind of get them moving with a couple people behind them from one pen to the next. Mm. I was doing that with my son last night, actually. It doesn't work to try to bait them. And with goats, all you got to do is rattle a can of corn and they come running. <laughs> That's the, by far oh. the easiest way. In fact, if you try to corral them, you'll end up just trying to push them from behind. They just stand still and they won't move. So, uh, but yeah, so we'll, we'll have instances where we're literally separating sheep from goats. Of course, there's the principles of weeding. Oh my goodness, there's so many principles that come alive, um, when, you know, dealing with weeds when they're small, when they talk about that in scripture about, you know, uh, the weeds or seeds that are taking root, you got to take, you have to get after that stuff as soon as you see it as early as possible. As if you wait for that weed to get established, you're, it's, it's a hundred times as hard to remove that. If you wait until it seeds, it's a thousand times harder to remove that. And so we see those kind of applications in our parenting all the time, that if we see something coming up that is not biblical principle or, or, or God-honoring trait, we work really hard as young as possible to try to work with those traits and those children because we just know we see it on our farm all the time. It's worth every little bit of effort that you put into it when the weeds are small and to try to cultivate that. 
So, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but, but those yeah. are probably some of, those are just a couple of the examples. There's, there's so much about the land and the health of the soil and the kind of crops that it produces and pruning trees and we have orchards too. And I mean, the, it, it just goes on and on. So once you're immersed in it, you know, the Bible was written by agrarians, if you want to mm-hmm. put it that way. Uh, and it was written in an agricultural context. So it's just, people could relate to the parables in, in the conversations and the stories in a way that we just don't relate to it anymore. We think a lot more in terms of brick and mortar and um, money and stock exchanges. And it, it's, you know, we're, a lot of the metaphors are lost on us today, unless you have some kind of experience in that. Um, and you really have to live it and you have to live it for a while before it starts to come alive. Do you find that the conversations that you've had with fellow believers has changed given that now you see like the, the deep reality of these biblical metaphors is like, no, this is, this is a, this isn't just a metaphor. This is how the world actually works. Do you find that it's different relating with people from, of the faith who aren't in an agrarian setting? Um, I, I don't know if I'd say it's difficult. I would say I've seen a swell of interest among Christian, among believers in recent years uh, to become closer to the land. I'd say mm. there's a huge swell right now. I mean, yeah. there's homesteading conferences all over um, the country and they're, pe- they're attended by the thousands. We were just at a homesteading conference um, about a week and a half ago and they expect something like, I don't know, 10,000 or 20,000 to come through over the course of a couple of weekends. So people are very drawn to this. I think it's in us. You know, we were designed originally um, we were created to, to tend and keep a garden, right? It says right, right mm. there in Genesis two. So, I mean, there's, there's a part of the human DNA that is drawn to the natural world. Um, and so I, I don't, I'm not trying to make any, um, what, what I want to say, like make, make anything into like a commandment, but I just think mm. that there is a natural instinct that draws people to it. So I would say if anything, people are very curious and very, uh, interested, just kind of like the questions you're asking me, like what has been your experience and what have you learned about it? And people are are very interested in talking about that, hearing about that. We get letters all the time from people who want to find land. They want to raise their children on the land. You know, they're they're asking for prayer in that regard. And so it's very much pressing, especially younger families. I think they see where things are going and they just want, for all of the reasons we've discussed, I think they want to have a closer connection to the land in, in, in a way that they doesn't, doesn't quite work in the city or in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's one of the reasons that I liked your book was that it, it sort of provides a, I guess, a conceptual bridge because moving from, moving from an urban environment, working for a corporation or, a, or even a, a small business or medium business, it's like, well, if I were to move out to the land, going from the idea of being employed by a large employer, even if you can just make that trade wholesale, like just make that switch. Well, what am I going to do? A farm is this big nebulous concept. Mm -hmm. What are some things that a man can do with his family and at home that help him visualize and actualize his skills and do it so he can envision, envision doing it every single day? Yeah. And a big reason why I wrote that book is well, I mean, not a big reason, but the only reason I wrote that book was to answer that question for mm. myself. I oh. like I just was at this stage where I said, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> like I I see where this is going. Um yeah, 
you can make really good money in, in IT, but that's not the most important thing. Um, is there a way to make a living, even if it's a smaller living, but to do something with my family and to do something that's going to last, like just to, to, to build a generational inheritance. Mm-hmm. And, by, and by that, I mean, uh, uh, like a tangible assets, not just uh, money in investments um, that can be part of it. But I mean, like knowledge, skills, um, we're raising sheep out here. And our goal is to raise like rock solid, hardy animals that are not dependent on antibiotics or wormers or they're not you know they're good mothers they they breed well they they uh, uh, just generationally very strong healthy herd animals that aren't dependent so like if we do that you know there are people who have been working on that over in europe for like 500 years and their children inherit these bloodlines that are incredible bloodlines but that you know you don't really you don't think about that in terms of assets in if you're working in a typical job, you're not your mindset isn't there, but that's something that you can do. There's all kinds of things that you can pass on to your kids. So for me, I guess getting back to that question is I just wanted to know what my options were. Like it like first of all, like you said, like is it I, I guess people farm, but is there anything else? Because I know I probably won't make make it work as farming. Mm-hmm. And I found out that there are a lot of options out there and some are better than others, but, uh, there are many options that are, that have survived for hundreds and hundreds of years and people still make a living in them today. And so that was the subject of the book was just going through all these different options and how, how they stack up against each other and a little bit about what, what would it look like for a family to work in that? So I did a lot of interviews with people who are working in these various trades, um, to kind of get an idea of like a day in the life of, of say a carpenter or a silversmith or an interpreter was one of them too. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of those in the book as well. I was surprised that you included even actors and artists as well. Yeah. I thought that was very encouraging. <laughs> Are you an actor? I'm not, but I no. mean, to, to see that the, the picture that you painted of, of what makes a society go, I, I think that there's a way in, in America, particularly, you know, people who live in urban environments is romanticizing mm-hmm. uh, the labor, which is great by all means, but there are so many different other pieces that feed in to make a society or civilization go, including art and beauty. Yeah. And you can't just leave that out. And so your inclusion of artists and actors was like, oh, there's something speaking to something higher, not mm-hmm. just the necessities of life. Yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of when times are hard economically, it's the basic necessities that are always enduring, right? Food, fiber, and shelter. And I go into that. And and the top ranked trades typically are connected to food, fiber, and shelter. But there are um, teacher in a a couple of different variations uh, shows up a few times on the list. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not typically considered like a manual trade, but it's something we're always going to have. Um, and and a lot of those other trades, which uh, have not necessarily, they may not even necessarily be viable for everyone, but for those who are skilled in certain ways, they can produce a living. I mean, there are, yeah, certainly. Not everyone can pick up a paintbrush and make a living doing it, but there are absolutely families doing that. And it can be a home-centered economy for those that it's the right fit for. Do you have a community around you where you are? Are you finding that there are people moving to your area and you're building maybe mutual systems of, of self-support of each other? Well, we're 
I would say both locally and um, external to us, we're connecting with people all the time that are interested in this topic of building durable community. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, starting to get um, networks in place. I think we're very much at the stage of forming relationships, and that's probably mm-hmm. the hardest stage. Uh, to really build loyalty in a community is is not an easy thing, as everyone who has been involved with churches or church leadership understands. Um, it takes a lot of intention and a lot of sacrifice to build sustainable community. But this is one of those things that everyone understands. If if you cannot depend on the large mega structures, on the governments, the corporations, the institutions, if they don't have your best interests in mind, well, you're going to have to do something yourself. You're going to mm-hmm. have to bring it back home, which just so happens is how everybody lived for most of home in human history. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. you're talking about the pre-industrial village. You have a group of 20 families that would charter a village together and they'd come over, let's just give an example into Puritan New England. And they would, they would basically form a covenant with each other and they would be a church that's living on property near each other and they're supporting each other and they're bringing in a blacksmith if that's what they need, or they're bringing in people with different skill sets. But the whole idea is that they're depending on each other. And we look at that today and think, isn't that quaint and outdated? And aren't I so glad I don't need to depend on my neighbors? But the thing about it is it was an incredibly um, stable way to live. I mean, we're talking Mm. for 5,000 years. This is how people lived, right? And you wouldn't have all kinds of remote decisions, say woke corporations, determining whether or not, uh, you know, what comes into your local store or whether or not you can shop there during a a pandemic uh, shutdown. Well, in in a large case, because you didn't need to shop as much, you're producing more of your own. Mm -hmm. So I just, I kind of gravitate towards those more, what are the more stable ways to live? We're entering an uncertain period. We're, We're always in an uncertain period, but we're certainly entering an unstable period. And so what are, what are some of those stable ways that people used to live? And that was, you know, in community, these families were way more responsible. They produced almost everything they needed, but they still lived in community and they still valued the relationships. And I think that's really a big key. One of the things that we lost when we went through the industrialization of this country and the whole world pretty much was the sacredness or the primacy of relationships. And so now we'll make anything, you know, with using technology, if it saves a nickel on the end product without really any concern for how it affects our neighbors. Um, There's just kind of one rule that we measure everything against, and that's the almighty dollar. But that was restrained through human relationships. I mean, if you think a lot about these villages, um, these are mostly kin these were families. You know, they didn't do things just because they could make a buck. Actually, it would probably get make you an outcast if that was your mentality. And so they had a safety net that was built into the system where they really loved each other and they really sought what was best. Now, not everyone did that perfectly, but it wasn't so fixated on the individualized success, which is what most of the economy is focused on today is individualized success. So anyway, those are a few thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I think a lot of people are looking for is the feeling that it's not just on me, because once, once you start romanticizing, you know, the productive household, you begin to realize, I'm sure that I can only do so much during the day, I need someone else to be able to 
I need someone else to be able to do the things that I can't do. And they need someone else to be able to do the things that they can't do. Maybe we could all collaborate together in these communities, you know, to build this self-sustaining sort of a small economy. And then you look back, it's like, wait, didn't we live that way for thousands of years? Exactly. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we're not Great inventing idea, anything. Huh? Yeah. yeah, amazing. It's it's like yeah. it's like people were so much smarter than we were. And we're yeah. aren't we the smartest well, people they ever? Were, they were simpler. It, yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a lot to do with it. Is we live in a very complex civilization now. It's 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 really extraordinarily complex, and mm. it's extraordinarily expensive to maintain the civilization. This is what the Roman Empire essentially ran into at their end as well. They just didn't have as advanced technology as we do. But it's incredibly expensive to maintain the level of complexity we have. And typically, if you look through, if you do a study of histories, I mean, a study of collapse in history, you'll find that when civilizations reach a certain level of complexity, they can't sustain it any longer and they revert to a simpler mode of life. And now, up until recently, people could do that. I mean, you, you could disband and relocate where the natural resources were more plentiful and you could just set up shop again. That's what we don't know is going to happen. We're, yeah. we're several generations into this complexity. So I think personally, there's wisdom in learning to do things the simple way. I mean, even like woodworking, that's something that my son is getting trained in on. And we're going to go with handheld, you know, hand tool woodworking. Mm -hmm. We'll use some machines and, and that's fine. But, um, you know, to, to know how to make furniture just using an axe to fell a tree to using planes and draw knives and uh, chisels and hammers. Um, there's a, there's a real value in learning that there happens to be a real good market. If you're good at that as well, people will pay a lot of money for handmade things. But um, I think there's a lot of value in just learning the simple way that we used to do things for thousands of years. And um, yeah, so that's all. What has been, what do you, what do you find the response has been, to the book. I mean, I know, I know some of the answer to the question, but as you, as you put this out there into the world, you did all the research, you know, over these what, 50 or so trades and you put mm -hmm. it out there, just sort of a, 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 an aspect of personal interest. What happens, what happened when you put that out there to people? Um, I was really excited when there was one book purchase because I knew, Hey, I'm not the only one <laughs> that likes this idea. Um, no, honestly, I had no clue. I was, it was a shot in the dark. I didn't know if anyone felt the way I did about these things. I just knew that I felt it in my bones and I had been putting so much time into compiling this information that I thought I would, you know, throw it out there to see if there was any, any interest. And there was, um, I've been very pleasantly surprised to see how much interest there is in this topic. Um, I think it, it kind of intersects a number of Things, one of which is looking at trades, reevaluating trades mm -hmm. as really the gem that they are. They're kind of been the overlooked um, uh, career path for so many, I don't know, decades now. People have tried to avoid it and tried to try to do anything they can to get into, you know, office counterpart type jobs. But I, I think it's a it's a good timing. It was a good timing to kind of reassess where we're at in terms of work. But then there's also there is this undercurrent of, you know, um, there's something really wrong with the way this this whole ship is moving. What? And no. we should probably we should probably think long and hard about where we want to be at a, you know as a family or as a community or as a church 
20, 30, 40 years from now. And we need to start moving there now. Like we can't wait for Superman to come and rescue us. This is something that we need to take on. So the book definitely has that kind of an ethos to it because that's just born out of where we're at as a family. Mm -hmm. We just felt we're not going to wait around for politicians. Like this is not going to be a thing that's solved at the ballot box. Even if we have good politicians, we still should know how to do these things ourselves. And, you know, we want to have some kind of generational legacy here. You're only alive so long. I don't want to just make my life about storing up a 401k bank account and then retiring to Florida at the end of all of it. We, I want to put my life towards something that's going to have a generational impact. So say more about the church aspect of it, because um, uh, the week before this one, this, this conversation comes out, uh, spoke to John Moody for a couple hours. And of course, he's, uh, he's outspoken on a number of different issues related to these topics and the church. So say more about that aspect as well, because I think that there are many men and many families that are looking in this direction and they're looking to their pastors or their communities for leadership and and the communities don't really seem to be on the same page or the churches have other agendas that they're pursuing or they just have their eyes off this particular ball. So so talk a little bit more about that angle, because it, it seems like a lot of men um, feel like or believe, and it may even be true, it probably is, that if they want to walk this road, they're not everyone's coming with them. Oh, yeah. Everyone. That would be a stretch. Yeah. Um, I will say this in agreement with Mr. Moody, who's I count as a friend of mine. Mm. Um, uh, one of the most common uh, letters that I get is from people looking for community of like-minded individuals in their area because they can't find it in their church. Yeah. They're often, especially if they're drawn to uh, living on the land or becoming more self-sufficient, um, there's, for whatever reason, they feel it very strongly and there, there's hardly anyone else in their church that feels that way. Um, I could, I could really only speculate, I mean, without knowing the specific circumstances, but my guess is that most of the church is so inebriated in popular culture that they don't see it. Like their mm-hmm. blinders are up to, to certain things that if they would disconnect from, um, again, popular culture, the popular entertainment, the movies, the music, um, the, the streaming, um, even in many cases, some of the social stuff, mm. if they would disconnect and just kind of still themselves and really begin to sense out what's going on out there, I think they maybe would come to the same conclusions. Um, but, but church is really driven, unfortunately, by the culture. Mm. And there is such a desire to stay relevant. I'm speaking just of the general church. I mean, this could of be course. across the board, but to stay relevant to culture, to be accepted by culture, that was... That was uh, Francis Schaeffer, right? The great evangelical disasters that the church, what did he say? Um, decided rather than being the conscience of a culture to accommodate that culture. And mm-hmm. so we kind of find ourselves several decades downstream of that now. Now, that's not to say they have bad doctrines or they, you know, I, they might line up perfectly with what you believe and what the Bible's saying. But it is very common in my experience that people who want to take more responsibility for themselves pull out of the corporate environment, uh, build a strong home economy that is more resilient and more durable, um, that often they're the only ones in their communities. And so that's one of the reasons they contact us is because we have, like I said, we have um, 
like a newsletter and we have a ministry and we have events on our farm and we speak right to this issue of the family economy. We've just made this really the front and center piece of what we want to be talking about and what we want to be encouraging other people to, because we really believe that for the days that are ahead, this is something that Christian families need to take seriously. So let's, let's talk a bit about the newsletter for a second. And then I have some, um, I have some, some practical questions that have come up as I've talked to men about your books. So, but let's, let's talk about your newsletter first. Sounds good. Oh, okay. So just, what is it? So, so we started (laughs) before the book was ever written. I mean, it's almost seven years now, or maybe almost eight years. We started publishing a quarterly newsletter, uh, just for fun, uh, with really no, no designs on it. Um, to share about what we were learning about trying to build a home economy and build a homestead and everything like that. Both my wife and I, we did not grow up with any farming background. Everything Mm. that we do is from scratch. So we like to tell people that if we can do it, you can do it too. And you can't, uh, trust me. I mean, (laughs) I'm serious. You can do (laughs) all of this. I, I had nothing to like on anybody when it comes to living on the land. Everything has been, uh, a hard, hard fought, hard won lessons that we learned. But, uh, so we just like to share that kind of stuff and we would start writing some reflections. So this newsletter grew to just a couple dozen friends and family to our latest one went out to over 3000 oh, wow. families across the, all 50 States. And it goes on to different continents. And I think it just speaks to, there's this real strong desire to find and connect with other families who are doing something like this, like what you d- described. So it's freely available. So it's called The Grovestead, and you can get it on our website if you go to thegrovestead.com. That's my last name, um, G-R-O-V-E, well, it's a the, G-R-O-V-E-S-T-E-A-D.com. Mm-hmm. You'll find it there. Uh, and then we started hosting events through, we set up a nonprofit a religious nonprofit to host Christian-based events that kind of pertain to these topics of the family economy, homesteading, um, living off the land, and then just connecting with other families who are doing likewise. So we hold multiple events every year on our farm. If you go to gatherandgrow.us, you can learn a little bit more about that. Gatherandgrow.us. Yeah, all these links will be in the show notes, gatherandgrow.us. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that was one of the things, once you... Once you manage to make your exit and make your way out, by the way, this seems to be the consistent thing that I hear from men who leave uh, professional positions and go out to the farm is like, look, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Uh, I, I love hearing that theme. Um, but you have, you have to really reach out and bring bring men and families up with you as opposed to just like doing it. And it really helps to provide a way for men to look and see their way forward from where they're, they're starting from. Yeah. Amen. That's right. It's beginning to look a lot more like Christmas. Well, everywhere except for Phoenix, where we're still gradually transitioning from the surface of the sun's summer heat to our annual reward of delightful shorts wearing sunshine in February. However, elsewhere in America, it's snowing, the trees are bare, the sun is a distant memory, and you're probably thinking about what to get your loved ones for Christmas this year. And since all of my listeners are nice, not naughty, plus based, handsome, and beautiful, and you'll obviously get everything you want, I have a suggestion. How about coffee? Think about it. This is something you'll use every day. It's delicious, and it makes you feel great. It's also the gift that keeps on giving. 
because you can go to reformationcoffee.com and not just order coffee, but subscribe to it weekly, bi-weekly, or even monthly. That's right, you can get coffee delivered to you even when it's cold in Phoenix or hot wherever you are, and every day in between. Plus, I have it on good authority that Reformation may be experimenting with a new top-secret blend in Brandon's Mad Scientist Coffee Lab slash prayer closet slash weight room. And this new project he's working on might require me to get a whole new set of coffee gear for season two of Will Reforms His Coffee. So you can get out of your old and busted woke globalist coffee and be part of this righteous new hotness by going to reformationcoffee.com and ordering several bags of coffee for you, your friends, your family, your wife, your kids, your neighbors, your dog, and maybe even your coworkers. Brandon will roast up your coffee in three days and ship right away faster than you can say Merry Christmas and jingle the bells of a blue-haired barista. So again, go to reformationcoffee.com right now and knock out your holiday shopping. And when you sign up for a regular coffee subscription, use the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag on the house. And I promise not to tell anyone if you put some milk in your coffee with your cookies and whiskey. Happy sipping, friends. So the, the practical questions, um, I was talking with a man recently who made a similar uh, similar transition as you from Silicon Valley out to uh, uh, purchase a farm um, outside in Northern California. And uh, I, ha- I was talking with him and I was talking about your book and he, he enjoyed your book, but where he was sort of, or uh, he had questions was getting into the economics of it saying like, okay, I have this high paying professional job, I make the switch. And then there's some period of time where say you're starting a farm where the farm has to do a whole bunch of things all at once. You have to, you have to get the farm productive and then you have to get the farm selling stuff and build all the relationships. And that takes a bit of time. So I guess he was sort of wondering about the economic question, not necessarily of a farm, although the specifics of a farm and acquiring livestock, et cetera, but also that gap in time between, okay, I'm gone from my professional urban setting. Now I'm in a rural setting and I'm skilling up in a trade and the trade isn't just going to produce, you know, $50,000 a year the first year. So there's that gap. Um, and so he had some questions. He wanted me to ask you some specific questions about that because uh, he knew that you were coming on the podcast. I mentioned that to him. So let's nice. talk about that little two, maybe it's, I don't know if it's two to three years or six to three, six months to three years. Let's talk about that time in particular. Okay. So, um, that's a good question. And it speaks to the basic, um, feasibility analysis, I guess you could say of relocating to the farm. I, I, believe me, I, I, I was a business owner for my, most of my career and I was all about strategy. Hmm. So, um, a farm, typically isn't going to work in like a business plan fashion. Mm. Like it's just, you can do that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but you're, you're created, that would be like a corporate farm, right? Farming as a way of life is a really different mindset. One of the main things that you have to recognize is that your goal is to transition from becoming a consumer to a producer. Mm -hmm. And so what you want to do in my opinion, to get the most bang from your buck for a move like this is you want to look for ways that you can stop consuming and start producing your own in-house things and thereby reduce the need for an income, whether Hmm. that's food, 
uh, whether that's in our case, our greatest, and it turned out to be, it's turned out to be wonderful, but our greatest, um, return on investment is meat. Mm-hmm. Our, our freezer, well, I shouldn't really say this. Don't, you I won't can, tell you anybody. Don't have to air this party <laughs> that, you know, our, our freezers are stocked with chicken and lamb and pork and beef. And I mean, we have a lot of food that frankly wouldn't be able to afford. Uh-huh. Yeah. Don't come on out here, everybody. Party at Rory's house, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> When's the barbecue? <laughs> Bring the girls. Yeah. Um, but, but that's like, you go to, you know, this whole inflation nonsense that's going on on meat prices and things like that. Like we don't even, we don't see it. And (laughs) now we're definitely coming out there. (laughs) I know. I know. Well, we'd love to have you for dinner. Well, bring on the whole family, but, but that's just, okay. So that's one spot. Now you're not going to replace your entire income, you know, based on a meat budget. But my goal in saying that is to, is just to share that it's a mindset that you're shifting away from a consumerist culture, which is what we've been trained to do. We've been trained to earn a lot of money, hire out all the help, you know, focused on one narrow specialized task mm-hmm. and then make as much money as you can from that and buy everything else you need because mm. you're too busy to learn how to do everything. So when you're coming out to a farm setting, you're trying to learn to become a generalist. You want to become proficient at many things. And this is, again, we talk about how people used to live. Most people were generalists. In fact, a lot of the trades that um, are professional occupations today didn't exist 150 years ago. Well, I mean, most of the trade, but I mean, they, they, they were just done on the home farm. Mm-hmm. Like people made their own shoes. Um, they were their own veterinaries. Um, they, uh, uh, there was very little involvement in a lot of the things that we outsource today to specialized tasks. They weren't whole professions. They were just done, you know, soap making. I mean, there's yeah. so many things that I could go on and on and on about this. It was just part of the production of the farm. Um, and so actually speaking to this very point, I have a podcast or a talk that I gave that you can download on our website for free. It's called, uh, it's called the, what did I call it? Oh, will work for food. <laughs> will work for food. The economics of self-sufficiency. And I go okay. into the very specific, this very specific topic is that if you're coming out to a farm to try to replace your, you know, IT computer programmer job income, it's going to be really hard and you're probably going to produce a job that you don't like anyway mm-hmm. in the process. If you're going to come out the the main goal in the first years is wisdom is okay. what I tell people. You want to learn. You're there to learn. The Bible says that uh, 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 you know, wisdom is more precious than silver than rubies and all these things and and that you you should be focusing on gaining wisdom. It says that get wisdom, get understanding. If you're coming at this cold with no background in this kind of thing, your first order of business is to grow wise. Hmm. You need to learn what you're doing before you try to build a business plan around it. Secondary thing is I see a lot of families come out to the country. Maybe they get excited. They read a Joel Salatin book or they saw Justin Rhodes or they saw someone doing it very successfully. And they think that they're going to be able to emulate that success in a very short amount of time. Mm. So they do what took my family 10 years. They might try to do it all in one year. And I would caution families that um, you can run the risk of really burning out your family in the process of trying to achieve your dream. So I encourage families to take it slow and learn at the beginning years. And then once you get a handle, and it might take you a little while. Once you get a handle on what you're doing, then write the business plan or then develop if this makes sense. Um, 
but if but don't quit your day job all at once you know try to find some kind of happy medium where you might have to take reduced pay you might take a job that's that just allows more flexibility but it's not quite as much income I, or you might have to downsize your expenses to make it work. We know a lot of families that have relocated or they've sold their homes and moved into smaller homes to get a, that was the, the painter that I interviewed in the, for the book mm. in order to get his small business started. So there are creative ways. You're not locked into your life right now. You can make some drastic moves, but I would say initially go slow and learn what you're doing if you don't have a background in this and then develop the wisdom will come. And frankly, I believe if you're trying to bring your family together in the process, which is what the, the focus of the book is on, is family economies, I believe that there is a blessing from God in that process. And I believe that he will lead you. He wants you to be together. He wants you to live on the land. He wants you to enjoy the blessings that he has for you. And so, yeah, it may not be quite the same uh, tax bracket, uh, but what's the difference if you're enjoying your life and you're raising godly offspring and you're you know you're passing on a generational inheritance um i'd much rather have the latter and and that's basically kind of what we've learned to do can you say more about the patience angle because it there's a couple different competing ideas like yes okay we're all high achieving motivated ambitious men and we channel that ambition into making it work on the farm or the homestead fantastic praise god but there's also a component of like, wow, our backs are really against the wall societally as well. There's a feeling like how to get it running as quickly as possible to be balanced with what you said, which is like, no, this is going to take time one way or another. Like maybe you can talk a little bit about your own process of gaining wisdom or, or the patience that you learned through it, because 10 years is a significant investment of time. I mean, it was, it you is. know, a couple of years ago, it was a different place, you know, for sure, like aspirational even then. But talk a little bit about how maybe you've had to learn this lesson. Oh, absolutely. I think um, there were, if you remember the 08 recession, there were, we moved out here, I think in 2012. So there were, we were still kind of on the heels of that recession. And there were definitely, there was an uneasy <laughs> feeling about where things were at. And then and we had, you know, remember all the tarp, remember how much, <laughs> remember how much uproar there was over the $800 billion of tarp money that was spent oh and that the whole tea party formed around that. I mean, it was a massive protest and we'll throw $800 billion out the window. Like it's nothing in these days yep. in this day. I mean, every year there's another trillion dollars. So anyway, back then, yes, I had very much that concern. I mean, but you know, I, there was, I, I, the thing I learned is that you couldn't do it all. I mean, you just literally can't do everything. And if you think you're going to, buy some seeds and store them in a freezer and then just grow food when you get hungry someday. That's, you got another <laughs> thing coming. Cause it, 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 I mean, it, we are still grappling with how to grow enough food to feed our family just from our, uh, from our own garden. And we've been at this for a long time. Mm. Now that said is I do think that, um, uh, I think there's grace for that. And I think that maybe if the Lord puts an urgency on your heart, um, it's probably cause he wants you to get started somewhere, somehow. Mm. Um, and it, and it may not even happen right away. I think about that all the time. Like, well, what's the timing of all of this? Well, we just don't know. We're mm. not in control of that. And you, you kind of know what you're capable of. You know what your family's capable of. You know, if you're burning your family out, then you're, work, you're pushing it too hard. And as a father, those are the kind of cues that you need to be able to read. Um, I would say that coming back to that question that we were talking about before, 
One of the things that was also different about pre-industrial times is families worked many different trades. They were not specialized in just one vocation, very rarely. I mean, like George Washington was a surveyor, but he was also a gardener and he was also an orchardist. And you know, Ben Franklin was a publisher and an author and a statesman and an inventor. And um, there, it was very common for families to have three or four or five trades that were overlapping and complementary, for example. And, and so the burden to earn an income from any one individual skill set was not as great as we think of it today. Like, well, I have to, I have to leave uh, being a computer programmer and become a chicken farmer. Mm. And, and we're looking at either or. I would say in terms of that profession, if you can maintain, uh, maybe you can negotiate for a different um, hours or, 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 or working, working situation that allows you a little bit more flexibility or freedom. Maybe a lot of people I know have been able to negotiate a work from home arrangement, which allows them a ton of freedom. Mm-hmm. So if you're not trying to replace the whole income all at once, it's a very, it's, it's a lot easier to start something up and to grow it year over year than it is to make a whole trade and then to start something else up and then something else up. And, and that's part of the advantage is that if you can ease your way into it, uh, without it being an all or nothing. Now, some folks, uh, they maybe work in a trade like carpentry and they can pretty much be in demand anywhere they are. Mm-hmm. And so you could live in the city and have uh, plenty of work, or you could move to a small town of 10 or 20,000 and have plenty of work. So uh, it, it just depends on kind of where you're coming from. So I also have a lot of uh, female listeners, a lot of wives, um, Maybe you can talk for a little bit, a little bit about what that process was like for your wife and your kids. Like, we're moving to the country. Here we go. Let's do this. Like, what was it like for her? Was this something that she was excited about? I imagine she was supportive of it. But what's her growth process been like um, through through over the past ten years? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's certainly was my idea starting out. But my wife, Becca, her name is Becca. She's a wonderful wife and she always loves an adventure is the thing I say about her. And so, uh, she, she, she was initially not really sure about that transition. Um, but honestly, once we got out, started looking around and she started to envision what her life might be out in the country and, and so forth. A lot of those concerns went away. Um, and over the years, I mean, she's embraced it. Uh, we absolutely love, the lifestyle and we love kind of what we've been able to create here. Um, we homeschool of course, and we have six kids now. Wow. And so integrating our kids into the farm, it, it's such a central part of how we educate, I guess, and, and live. It's, it's kind of like, I don't know where one ends and the other begins because we use the farm as a basis for our homeschooling and, and in the education never really stops, but it's also career preparation. I mean, my children are learning things that I want them to know when they're older. Um, and then it's also, uh, it's a sanctuary for us. I mean, we worship here, Mm -hmm. you know, we have our, our, our most important church is the one right in our home. And so this is, this is all part of what makes our family economy is all of this together kind of incorporates. And um, that's not to say that you can't do these things in another location. I don't want to restrict people or bind people to just being on a farm because that's frankly not possible for everyone to do that. 
But there are so many elements that you can do right where you are. Um, I We started initially, we were in an apartment, living in an apartment in Nebraska, and we had started with uh, a potted uh, tomato plants on our apartment balcony. <laughs> now, I wouldn't quite say it was self-sufficiency, sure. but it was starting to get some idea down. It was starting to learn a little bit about growing. BLT sufficiency. As, yes, right, right. As we started to to grow and 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 move to we then we were in the city after that for a long time and we we just used what we had and I think you know if it's something that is on your heart at all to move in that direction I do believe that God probably put it there and so he's it's a desire that he wants to answer so it's something to steward and pray over and wait on him trust him mm-hmm. so looking back you know ten years to when you started this adventure if you could say two things to yourself from 10 years ago, knowing that there are probably a lot of men looking at the start of this journey themselves. One would be a a warning or a word of caution, and the other would be a word of encouragement. What would you say to yourself starting out on on this journey? Yeah, well, I would say certainly as a, what the word of caution that we kind of touched on already was to take it slow and to learn to walk before you run and um, take advantage of what you have now. Don't, don't delay moving in the direction that you feel led uh, until you have, you know, the perfect piece of land. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't do that. I mean, take advantage of, get creative, take advantage of the opportunities that are around you. Um, One that just pops to mind is a lot of people get land by starting out by renting it from someone else. And so they they are able to they maybe meet a farmer who has a couple acres he'd rent if you wanted to go if you lived in a in a place that you couldn't you know you 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 couldn't grow a lot of food um, you could build a relationship with that farmer and sometimes those relationships turn into offers to sell the land but my point is um, I would say start somewhere uh, and do it together mm. focus make make bringing the family together around what you're doing around the work, make that the priority. Find ways to bring your family together and then see if God blesses it. And don't let fear get in the way. That would be the other thing is I, I know that we live in a time where there's like a lot of uncertainty, but don't let fear of a job situation or a mortgage or a, um, uh, a fear of others, opinions of others. If God has put something on your heart, you need to be obedient to that call. And step forward in faith, even if you don't know how it's all going to work mm-hmm. out. I think someone has said, faith is taking the first step when God hasn't shown you the second step. <laughs> That's great. So take those steps of faith. And we have seen this one thing that we have seen over and over again prove fruitful for families is to pray and ask God for a vision for, his, for your family and then take that first step. If you feel these things on your heart, he might give you, it might just be a phone call. Uh, or it might just be, um, um, will be another example. It might be relocating to a house with a little bit of a larger property. Or it might be uh, changing a job or negotiating with your boss for a work from home situation. Whatever it is, just try to try to find out what God's vision for your family is. Because I believe the family economy principle is that God brought every one of you together for a purpose. He brought you and your wife together. He brought the specific children into your family for a purpose. And it's up to the father to figure out what that purpose is and then to lead his family accordingly. But God will tell you if you seek him. 
but go do that first. Mm. So what are your plans for 2024? That's beautiful, by the way. I'm going to be thinking about that. Faith is taking the first step when God doesn't show you the second step. I'm going to be thinking about that one a lot. Um, thank you for that. Uh, so what are your plans for, for 2024? We talked about a couple of things before we hit record, some of the things you've got in the works. Yes. Um, well, we have a new book coming out just called The Family Economy. And so you can look for that coming out. It'll probably be in the second quarter. My, my guess it'll be somewhere around between March and June and that'll come out. Um, and that'll be everything we're talking about in a nutshell. Hmm. It's it, the family economy in a nutshell and how to get started. Is it something very practical that I can put in people's hands so they can kind of have a, a simple conversation about what this is about and then how they can begin to implement it at home, hmm. no matter where they are. Uh, and then the other thing is that we have, um, you know, we'll continue to do our events here at the Grovestead. So come to gatherandgrow.us if you're interested and uh, we'll let you know when those are posted. But we typically will do uh, several events a year here on our property. Uh, we'll continue publishing the newsletter. And then uh, I've been getting some more speaking invitations. So I'll be going around and, and sharing some more too in different locations as we're able. You can't mm. leave the homestead too often is the thing about uh, is the thing that we're learning about what our limits are. So it's a lot easier for us to host events here, but we really enjoy when you have a chance to go offsite and meet some other folks uh, in their neck of the woods and encourage them as well. And the, the newsletters, is it free or it's, it's a paid newsletter? Yeah, free. Newsletters free. Oh, yep. just... Come to the website, gatherandgrow.us or thegrovestead.com. It's uh, free. It's about you know, 10, 12 pages. Wow. We put articles in there of other families who are making the leap and how they're doing it and what God's doing as a result. Um, our last issue just had a father down in Texas who ha is starting a um, handmade toy business mm. uh, with woodworking. And he's in transition right now, but it's pretty, it's pretty neat what God is doing in their family. So we just try to put things like that in there and encourage families who are already walking this direction. So yeah, definitely come check that out if you want to follow up on follow up with us and kind of get some more ideas for your own family. That's great. Okay. So the, so um, you, where you'd like to send people is probably the growstead.com gatheringgrow.us. Is, That'll work. is there any place else you'd like to yeah, send? Either, either one, they're, they're kind of, they just want, one's our family blog and we just link over to the events website, but either one will get you where you need to go. Also, if you're interested in the book, I guess you could mention that too, mm -hmm. Durable Trades. Um, that's the compendium of 61 uh, trades that are the most uh, durable throughout history, um, and also ranked in order of family centeredness. So you can kind of get an idea of which vocations are still options if you want to work together with your family. Yeah, it's it's actually practically a pretty short book. You know, there's the introduction. Mm -hmm. It's not actually expected that you'll read all 61 trades. Like I just went to the ones yeah. that that appealed most to me. Yeah, it, the the trades make up uh, a large chunk of the book, but you don't have to read it back cover to cover. There's there's some reflections on the times we're entering in, what we've shared a little bit about here today. I called the challenge ahead, and then there's some reflections on what we've learned in our own family, um, trying to become more self sufficient, also trying to build a family. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for all of your wisdom and for your time today. I know you've got a lot going on at the at the farm, so I appreciate you uh, stepping out to to chat with me today. Oh. Very happy to do it. I'm glad to be a resource. Reach out to me if you have any follow-up questions. I love to hear from dads and love to encourage you guys or, or pray for you any way that we can. Absolutely. I'm sure we'll have a lot of men in my men's group, especially that are looking in the direction that you're pointing. So I'll be sure to send you any follow-up questions that they have. Please do. Thank you. Thank you, Will.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.